Riders. Uh, oh, one more. It's the Down Home Show, every Saturday from noon to 3, right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers. Today, I'm so happy to have Francine Prose here in the studio with me. Welcome, Francine. Hi, T. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, well, it's, it's great to have you here. Um, and, and I'll say, Tex took your photo already. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> when we get this Living Writers website thing up, you're going to be up there, if you don't mind. Even better, Tex, Tex let me keep my sunglasses on, the favorite way to be on websites. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The 
mystery, <laughs> the novelist, <laughs> Francine Prose. And I should say we're taping this April 18th, 2012. Um, Francine, you're here to, to do a talk for the, mm -hmm. the Hopwood Awards, mm -hmm. um, which will be happening a little later. Um, today um but this is as i'm saying as i said that we're taping so um hopefully some of you listening got a chance to hear it um your your novel my new american life um out with harper perennial and paper just this year 2012 um and so maybe we'll hear a little bit about sure. a little from that later on uh to start we'll do the time-honored short bio from the back of the book Francine Prose is the author of 16 books of fiction. Her novel, A Changed Man, won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and Blue Angel was a finalist for the National Book Award. I think I'm doing my NPR voice, Nancy. <laughs> Her most recent works of nonfiction include the highly acclaimed Anne Frank, the book, The Life, The Afterlife, and the New York Times bestseller, Reading Like a Writer, a former president of Penn American Center and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Francine Prose lives in New York City. And now... That's me. <laughs> we got the right. It's more, it's accurate. <laughs> And you hadn't seen the paperback yet. No, I've you never mentioned. seen it yet. And uh, it's a different cover from the uh, from the hardback. So I've just seen it. You know, I've seen the image on Amazon, but oops, I've seen the image online, but uh, but I haven't seen it. It looks good. And you know, it's so it's all about the driving on the front here because that seemed to be part of the genesis of this. It is book. about driving. Yeah, and and in fact, I mean, part of it, you know, it's about an Albanian immigrant in, in New Jersey, but part of it is about it is about driving because I've never really. I mean, even though I was born here and raised here, et cetera, et cetera, I've never really felt like an American because I can't drive. Well, you were born, you were raised in Brooklyn. I was raised in Brooklyn, and you know, you couldn't get your license till twenty-one. And by the time I was old enough, I was out of there. And then I just didn't get my license till I was thirty-five, and it was too late, really. I mean, everyone says if, unless you get your chops down when you're a kid, it's over. And finally, <laughs> like ten years later, I'd had so many fender benders and so forth that there was a kind of a family intervention and they said it's probably better if you don't drive anymore and so I haven't so 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 a lot of the novel is about learning to drive but I realized that it's not my first novel I mean I've written other novels in which driving is a big deal so it obviously it seems to be some sort of obsession in fact I'm working on a novel now in which one of the characters is an auto racer yeah, maybe it's because it's so grafted into the American consciousness. Oh, it's sure. like our like the the American horse, like yeah. from the Wild West. Sure, apple pie flag, mom car. Yes, or and car mom apple pie flag. <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> <laughs> and and in in the story, you have your your um your your main your protagonist. She comes to America and tells the uh, the the um. Uh, oh dear, words are failing me. This, this the, was the the, in, the the man to give her a visa that she's, oh the INS guy think, yeah. that she wants to go to Detroit first. Well, she has relatives in Detroit, and uh, and you know there's a big Albanian community in Detroit. He had he has no reason not to believe her. But but what you know the book is also a lot about lying, which is so it's uh, you know it's in that way it's a book about writing fiction and and. Ah. What she's doing. And, and, but the thing is, what she says is all the time she's home growing up in Albania, she never told any lies. And the minute she walks into the visa officer's office, she starts lying and she doesn't stop lying for one moment the whole time she's in this country. Even so. small things with Zeke um, when they're watching television together. Yeah. 
No, she. What was? What's the line? I can't remember. She. Just, I mean, she's just constantly. Just she can't stop. But uh, I, liars are fascinating to me. I mean, have you ever known any uh, compulsive liars? Not that they've let me in on. <laughs> well, I, well, that I well, can sometimes may have. be you a may little gullible. You may have because they're very good at it. That's why they're compulsive liars, and they get and be, and so. Have, have you? Known a, have yeah, you? no, I've known a couple, and and the thing about them is that, like, eighty percent of what they're saying is completely outrageous, but twenty percent <laughs> sounds outrageous, but then turns out to be true. So then you think, okay, well, maybe the other eighty percent is true because that also sounds outrageous. It's just not true. So so they're very good, and and you know, I think one of the things I don't know if I'm the only one, but I think there are other writers who, who really you pay attention to way to the way people lie. You know, too many details, a little. And once you start, you know, I mean, you can hardly watch the news, the evening news, because you're just going like, I don't think so. Really? (laughs) And, and, you know, one of my friends, also a fiction writer, you remember when there was that um, scandal where the woman wrote the memoir about growing up in South Central and she turned out not to have grown up in South Central. Do you remember this? Vaguely, but I can't. She wrote this memoir about growing up in South Central L.A., very poor, very troubled family, the neighborhood, that blah, blah, blah. And then it turned out she came from a middle-class family, and her sister outed her. You don't remember this? I can't remember the book. But anyway, a friend of mine, a writer, the first time she heard this woman interviewed on, oh, it was on tell. NPR, she said, no, that's not true. And like three weeks later, the bubble burst. So I think And that, what did she say? What what it, what it, what about it just that she it, could tell? It just wasn't the... adding up. It was too much or too little or something, and it just something in her voice just tipped her off. It's a, so, and but you're saying it's about also because of the line in a way. It's also about writing fiction. Yeah. Well, we're you know we're allowed to make things up. That's what we're supposed to do. We get actually published, and we get sort of paid for making things up and inventing imaginary people and. And imaginary friends. I mean, it's the weirdest way. Imaginary to, friends. Imaginary friends. It's the weirdest way to spend your life in a room with completely, you know, the sort of imaginary friends that your parents were really worried about you because you had them <laughs> later in life than you were supposed to. Like, she's 12 and she still has imaginary friends. Well, she's in, she's in her early 60s and she still has imaginary friends. It's, it's weird. <laughs> and, and not allowed to drive. <laughs> and then not allowed to drive, right. How well? How did this? How did this start with uh, my new American life? What? What was the? Yeah. Well, it started in a weird way. It started. I mean, you know, people think. Often, people think that that you have an idea. You know, you have an idea. Like, I mean, the book's about immigration, in so far as it's about anything. But I thought you you said you didn't know that it was about that when you started writing. No, I wrote it. I wrote it because I I was gotten I had gotten an assignment to write a story for Lexus magazine, and uh, and. You know, it was good money, basically. And I thought, I just had a kind of vision of Alexis uh, trawling a suburban street, a big black Lexus SUV. And then I thought, okay, who's in the Lexus? Three Albanian Coke dealers. and Of course. Of course, right? Who else would be? And uh, and they turned out, you know, in the novel, they turned out not to be Coke dealers, something else. There's something else. But they are Albanian. And that it kind of spun out from there. Oh, and that and it was originally because I was reading in, in the back of the book where they give give you mm-hmm. in the paperback edition mm-hmm. a few extras about it. And, and 30 years ago, you heard about a young woman who said Albanian gangs like heard her tell a story that Albanian gangsters taught her how to drive. Yeah, they just drove her to the middle of George Washington Bridge and left her there. So and I said, what happened? She said, I drove. 
And that, you know, that sort of figures into the book as well. A learn, another learning to drive story. America. 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 Come here, learn to drive. <laughs> but, you know, I was, I actually, I went to Albania for research. And, and as my character Lula says in the book, you know, they've only had kind of private cars there for 10 years or something. So nobody can drive. And they're all driving these Mercedes, like hot Mercedes, or I don't know where they get these Mercedes. And and part of the reason it turns out that Mercedes can, I feel like a Mercedes salesman. But they <laughs> Sponsored can stand right. today's show. <laughs> yeah, can Sponsored. we get product placement or something? Well, right, I didn't get the Lexus for writing this thing. So, But um, but they stand up to these crashes. So like while we were there walking through the streets uh-huh. in Tirana, we're seeing these Mercedes, like, you know, rear-ending these, I don't know, you know, former Yugoslav cars, exhaustive, whatever they are. And, and, the, you know, and, the, and the, right, the cars are like, the, you know, little 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 hunks of metal. And the Mercedes just drives away, you know, without even a tent. So, so that's why that car became super popular there. But none of them could, I mean, the driving was just, and the, I mean, it, that's not quite true because the infrastructure is so terrible that to get anywhere... Anywhere, you kind of have to hire a driver, so which is not something I normally do. But yes, we got a driver who was a great driver, but he was, you know, you know, there was a terrible ad in this country. I can't maybe it was Audi. Did you see it? it was a TV ad that just used to infuriate me, and it was like it was basically like here in the United States, the infrastructure is so bad that you should get an Audi because. Uh, it has this great suspension. You didn't see this ad. No, it's it sort of no. controversial. So it's like, it's like I live in a box apparently <laughs> so far. So it's, it's like you know the poor let them drive their Chevys and just fall into the potholes. And you guys in the Audis, you're just like, oh yeah, it was really disturbing. <laughs> I can tell I'm not going to get an out free Audi from from this. But uh, we're railing against the Audi. <laughs> but yeah, with with my memory, it'll turn out not to have even have been the Audi. I think it was. But um, but. But in Albania, you had to have these big SUVs because otherwise you just couldn't you couldn't go anywhere. So I mean, we went to this one town outside the capital. I don't know it was like fifty miles outside the capital. It took two and a half hours to get there because well, they had the most insane um, paranoid dictator. I mean, they were you know they were off the edge of the planet for the whole time that they were under communism, and then they were the slowest really to come back afterwards. So. How far in the novel were you, Francine, when you went to Albania? Because was it a, was it a research? Was, it was yeah, part for yeah. the research, and mm-hmm. and it sounds like you even went to a dinner with some of these, like without knowing it. Oh yeah, where did, where did you find that out? Is it it's in the book? The the book. Yeah, the uh, American embassy invited us to a dinner with a bunch of murderers, basically Albanian murderers, who were uh, they produced these writers for us to have dinner with and uh the pen american center was <laughs> was no. never prouder <laughs> yeah well right that's right then the next day we saw our friends from pen actually and they said well, who's at dinner and they they just all turned pale and it turned out that under the dictator i guess two out of the four people we'd had dinner with had been you know, had turned people over to their deaths, basically. So, you know, and it was it was this ridiculous dinner, and everybody got very drunk because it was very boring. And you know, we're talking about democracy and the Bill of Rights, and everybody's oh, and you know, and and also I was quite upset that the embassy didn't seem to know the difference between who the good guys were and who they weren't or had been. Yeah, the U.S. embassy. The U.S. Had embassy. No idea. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about um, strange fiction. And compulsive lies. And no, no. 
Yeah, I well, mean, what's, what's happening? <laughs> oh, dear. Up is down. Um, well, Francine, let's take a short break. And then when we come back, do you mind reading um, some from my new American life? No, sure. That'd be fine. Okay, we'll take a short break. Today on Living Writers, Francine Prose is here. And thanks to Tex, who's engineering. I'm T. Hetzel. Be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Francine Prose is here. My new American life um, out this year with Harper Perennial. Thanks to Jane Byrne for sending the, the books. And also we have on the table A Changed Man. Um, but My New American Life is what we'll hopefully hear. Because this is the newest. Mm-hmm. This is the freshest. It's of- not officially out yet. I think it's officially out the first week in May or something. Oh, in the paper. Yes. Ooh. 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 <laughs> well, we've got it's it ne- here. It's neonatal. <laughs> oh, no. If only we had some sound effects that we could press. Lovely. Actually, speaking of sound, the uh, the music that we're hearing today, the the, the, the tracks will all be from your son's mm-hmm. band. Would you mind telling us a little bit? No. he's this, Actually, the music we've heard so far was recorded in our basement when he was in, I don't know, late high school, early college he's a uh, saxophone player that's him playing the sax but he's also a music producer who has worked with Adele Amy Winehouse um, and most Iggy Pop and most recently and most recently Dr. John but the but the the music we've been hearing is from his own CD which is called L. Michael's Affair which is his or sounding out the city L. Michael's Affair E-L-M-I-C-H-E-L-S Affair and that's those are all songs that he wrote and recorded with his friends basically who are now all professional musicians and then in that the first opening song mm-hmm. his, his wife that's my daughter-in-law speaking Spanish El Pueblo Unido that's right Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, Francine, do you mind, will you mind reading for us a a short piece from My New American Life? Uh, Let me, I'll just read the first paragraph. How would that be? Oh, that sounds sounds Okay. Or the first two paragraphs. The day after Lula's lawyer called to tell her she was legal, three Albanian guys showed up in a brand new black Lexus SUV. She'd been staring out her window at the drizzly afternoon and thinking that the mulberry tree on Mr. Stanley's front lawn had waited to drop its last few leaves until it knew she was watching. Obviously, this was paranoid and also egocentric, but in the journal that her immigration lawyer and her boss had suggested that she keep, she wrote, October 2005, 
Does a leaf fall in New Jersey if no one is there to see? Don Cetabello and Mr. Stanley would go nuts for a line like that. They were always telling Lula she should write a memoir about her old Albanian life and now her new one in the United States. Don even had a title, My New American Life. Lula had a better title, Stranger in a Strange Land, but she'd already seen it in the public library. Maybe she could still use it. Maybe no one would notice. Thank you for reading sure. that. Actually, that's, that's funny. Thanks. <laughs> I thought so. I'm always, I've been shocked when people haven't noticed. Really? Even from oh, the, yeah. the first page? Cause I... Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, you know, I mean, the way I know that it's working for me when I'm writing is if I'm sitting at my desk and laughing, I think, okay, okay, I'm onto something here. So, And I was kind of, well, chortling at that point, at least. Yes. I was too. I mean, I had to lean away from the mic as you were reading that. Because it's, it's funny. I mean, it, I can't... Um, why why do you use humor? Why? Because, you know, for one thing, to entertain myself, that's, you know, and to make myself laugh. And also, it's just a way, it's there, It's all sorts of uses. uses. I mean, it's a way of talking about things that are serious. I mean, I, I, you know, unfortunately, I think it's hard for a lot of people to understand that something funny can also be serious at the same time. So I'm ta- what am I talking about? I am talking about immigration. I'm talking about what it was like to live in the United States during the worst part of the Bush-Cheney Bush years, yeah. what it was like in particular for immigrants, uh, really hard. And in fact, when I was, when I was um, working on the book, I was teaching at Baruch College, and, and most of my students were from, it, they were from other places. I, only, I think out of 20 kids, maybe three were American-born. And they would tell me their stories, which were in many cases like Lula's story. And they were all working two jobs. They were going to school. They were operating the second language. And it was their new American life. So um, so I wanted to put that in the novel. But, but humor is a way not to get terribly serious about things that are serious, to avoid being sentimental, to avoid being preachy, to avoid being polemical. It just kind of lightens things up. And you can say things that you couldn't perhaps say other ways. Oh, I'll tell you a story. This is, I mean, typical. This, a, 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 a young woman came up. She and She's working with another woman, and they're doing um, uh, paintings. The, the, one of the women's a painter, and the other's a writer. And the woman who's doing is a, the painter is doing paintings of writers' bookshelves. It's called the Ideal Bookshelf Project. <laughs> you can go look online. It's the Ideal Bookshelf Project. So um, I said to her, the writer, Thessaly, came to my house in the country and wanted to take a picture of one of my bookshelves, you know, to, for, so her friend could paint it. And I said, you know, the idea of arranging a bookshelf would just be insane for me because, you know, do I put my friends on? Do I put the most grand and classic and pretentious of writers? Or, you know, blah, blah. So I said, look, the only way I'll do this is if you take a shelf that's already established. So you just take a picture. I'm not going to touch it. So there was one shelf in my... Um, in my study, and it's all Chekhov books. It's only Chekhov books. But then at the end of the shelf, it's a long shelf, are puppets of Max and one of the monsters from Where the Wild Things Are. Because my granddaughter comes up and hangs out in the study. And then this very beautiful little tea set that I got on eBay, uh, and they're having tea. So it's Chekhov for like half the t- for half the bookshelf. And then there's Max and Monster facing each other on the shelf having tea. And and the interview is sort of about Chekhov. And then it's about Max and Monster. And I said, well, you know, we play with them and um, they have lives. You know, they go to the movies. They go to restaurants. They like Mexican food. They're like five-year-old New Yorkers. And 
that went into the interview and it went into the painting of the thing. But it was a way, I mean, the humor in that was a way of getting around the seriousness of having to say, here is how myself is represented in this bookshelf with all these perfectly exquisite choices I've made to represent who I am. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It was something else. Yeah, it almost seems like that should be, thank goodness you did that. I could see. <laughs> also, it should be part of the project where the people, if they are painting the bookshelves, you just take a snapshot of mm-hmm. it. It's not something that's supposed to be arranged, as you said, because then that... I would think that under, well, that well, ruins you know, the project in a way, <laughs> the surprise of it, or, or it just becomes complete artifice. I guess you want to give people the choice. I mean, I know I have other friends who have done it where they really wanted to pick books that, that represented who they were um, and and where they came from and books that were huge influences on them. So there That's was true. that, you know, or give their friends, do their friends a favor by putting them on the book, whatever. But I just couldn't do it. That's true. That's that's actually yeah, the generous. No. That's a nice outlook on it. <laughs> I wasn't that generous. Well, no. <laughs> that's that's completely not true, Francine. I can think of you as nothing but generous. And I and thinking about the um the 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 multitude of writings that you've done. Um let's see. Uh, how is there how did you decide to actually start writing the long novel? Because you've done the short, you have short stories, uh, collections, novellas, um, novels. Is this the 14th novel, this one? I don't know. They keep track. My they do. Math okay. is not my strong yes. okay. suit. <laughs> Obviously not mine either. But then um, then the nonfiction pieces, uh, the book on Anne Frank, the um, your young adult books, um, one called Gluttony. Which was intriguing. Oh, well, that was, you um, know, Oxford University, University Press called me up and said, uh, we're doing the seven deadly sins. You get to pick first. What do you want? And I said, gluttony. And they said, okay. I mean, it was fun, you know, and I just, because it's, it's a sin that I have a great deal of sympathy for. So, uh, you know, and I thought, well, I'll just write about body image from uh, from early, you know, the church fathers and so forth, all the way up through, what's her name? The Oh, you know the Wilson, the the Beach Boy daughter. Oh yes, you know Wilson Phillips or, or no, the other no. one, the Carney Wilson. Car- oh, okay. oh, who's like selling her diet products online? So it was you know it was that range from like Th- Thomas Aquinas to Carney Wilson. I thought that would be fun, <laughs> and it was sort of. A, a to W. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and so and you say it's fun. Like it's so these projects. Some of them then people are and like this this book grew out of the Lexus mm-hmm. um, short story that mm-hmm. then suddenly mm-hmm. you found yourself with a novel. Um, so are so are that is that what's happening now in your life as a writer? Like these different projects are coming to you or or what's yeah well, well now we've skipped you know, over your formative years <laughs> oh so that's we'll, over we'll with we'll go back to that i know they're all you know well for one thing i think what do i want to say i mean it's not as if i do this on purpose but i think part of our job is to keep doing different things in a certain way i mean just you know for, for starters, to keep raising the bar for yourself. I mean, if there's something that you know that you can do well, there's a temptation, and I think it's a lot. It's a temptation that a lot of artists of all sorts succumb to, which is just to keep doing it. People like it. I can do it well. I'll just keep doing it. Everybody's happy, you know. But I don't really like doing that, and I 
for was one reason or another. At some point or I don't know, I just feel like I'm being lazy or something. And and so and again, it's not as if you can choose what you're going to do necessarily. I mean, things come to you, not necessarily because somebody calls you up and says, which seven deadly sin do you want? But because, you know, something happens or something. Well, the Caravaggio book, for example, um, Jim Atlas, who is an old friend, was doing this eminent live series. And he said, uh, what do you want? To, who do you want to do? And I'd been writing a lot of art criticism at the time. And I'd been looking at a lot of Caravaggio. And, and he had... I guess when he first came to me, it was called Brief Lives. And Caravaggio, of course, had a very brief, very dramatic life. So I said, oh, I'll do Caravaggio. Because he died so, at 37? 30, yeah, 36, 37. Uh, and, you know, he killed someone in a, 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 after a tennis game, blah, 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 blah. He was on the run for the last four years of his life. I mean, it was a great story, and he was a great artist. So um, so that came about that way. But now I'm working on something. I mean, it's too hard to talk about. It'll take the rest of our show. But it was going to be a nonfiction project, and it just seemed like it was going to take years of painful research. And I thought, I don't have, I just don't want to do it. And so I thought, I'll just make it up instead. So it's it's a novel. It's a very long novel, but it was going to be nonfiction. Are there places where it's blurring then, so that there's these? Yeah, I mean, Hitler's them. a character. He comes in. He has a cameo. Uh, Picasso. So there are, you know, there's an inter, uh, uh, there's overlaps, but um, but the characters, even the characters, most of the characters who are based on real characters are very far removed from the real character. <laughs> I mean, part of it. I'm writing. I'm writing this kind of fake Henry Miller book in the middle of it, which is so much fun. It's so much fun. So and know. and so, how are you? What are you channeling? Yeah. Good old Henry. Yeah, or what, I'm, I'm channeling Henry. It's really great. I mean, it's just you know, yeah. And it just it just comes in the middle mm-hmm. of this longer project. Uh-huh. How did you know it was going to be something that was going to be? Is so? Is this epic? Is it sort of epic proportions? Is yeah. It be well, like- I, I began to re- realize, for starters, it was going to uh, cover 20 years of history, and that it was going to have. I mean, I slowly, more slowly, realized they're going to have five or six major vo- different voices. So, and I went, oh no. But here I am. So when you say you realize that, though, is that something that it, you you almost make it seem like you can then you're powerless against it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. It's, I would say, I mean, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 percent is conscious planning. And then the rest is, is being willing to go with it or something. I don't, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know. I heard some guy on Charlie Rose last night just talking in this kind of bogus way about creativity <laughs> but but you know you like ideas should come to you in the shower i don't know what, what he was saying but in a way he was right i mean the, are you sure it wasn't charlie rose no, just, no i love i will i like i love charlie no, rose some guys have just saying. written a book about thinking you know the minute you read like there's a book about thinking almost immediately my hackles but anyway <laughs> Uh, tell us, tell us more about this thinking. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That you do in tell the shower. Tell us how to think, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he, but he was just saying, you know, when you try and focus, it doesn't work so well as when your mind is wandering. And but to a certain extent, that's true. I mean, if you sit there and say, okay, I'm going to have an idea now, it's pretty hard oh. to have an idea. But if you are just doing something else, uh, you know, sitting in the bathtub for hours, you might have an idea. And in. In the back of my new American life, there's there's a, a a blurb about you you talking about the the beginning, the origins of the, mm. the book, and and there you say it's like it, the idea something came to you like it was an awaking dream. Yeah, no, I had this. It was a kind of a vision of this Lexus on the street. So, you know, a bit of a hallucination. 
here, here. <laughs> we'll take a short break and then we'll hear more of these hallucinations <laughs> and, and other thoughts um, from Francine Prose. Um, her book, My New American Life, the novel um, out in May, did you say? Out in May. Uh, in paper, Harper Perennial. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Francine Prose is here in the studio. Um, I'm so glad. Living. <laughs> living. Knock on wood. Living. We're going to get, get to get, give, giving you a pen, do some writing here. Um, you find some space on the table. It's, it's and this is a great tablecloth. Gosh. It, it's, yes. And it's it's kind that you said, yeah, I guess it is a cloth, isn't it? Yeah. It's but it's never off the tables. <laughs> um, anyway, welcome to WCBN in our Thank world. You. <laughs> and you've 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 had lots of experiences at different radio stations from the mm-hmm. our walk over here. You were mm-hmm. saying um, from NPR and Neil Conan's Talk of the Nation, doing oh, all sorts of yeah. So you've got a place no, in your the, heart for radio. Oh, absolutely. And they're real geniuses out there. I mean, we mentioned Michael Silverblatt, who's amazing. I mean, Michael, you know, it's Michael Silverblatt is famous. I mean, I remember the first time I was on his show, and I can't remember what he asked me, and I and I thought, and usually, I mean, usually, you go or often, you like go to some town, and and the person says, "Can you tell me what your book is about?" And you go, oh, "Okay." But Michael reads everything, and then Michael will ask some question, and I'll think, like, can I go home and just go to my hotel and stare at the ceiling for three or four hours and then come up with the answer and come back and tell you? So, you know, they're really, they're amazing people out there. And plus radio. I remember listening to radio when I was a kid. I used to listen to soap operas on radio when I was a kid. I loved it. I think we're going to try to bring back some of those old-time radio shows really? at some point here. What a good idea. That, that would be... Even the Lone Ranger, which is was awful, and I had you know the thought that I was even interested in that is shaming in a certain way. But there, what it was a serial, you know, and you were hooked. I was hooked. Well, it's something about the imagination, isn't it? Where you're listening, yeah, and the pictures just going. You know, you have to provide your own visual. So it's it's I can see why a lot of writers like radio. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks to all of you out there listening. 
to us, whether you're 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 listening here on the the bandwidth or streaming or on podcasts later on. And if you're listening to a show called Living Writers, it must mean you have some interest in books. So bless your heart. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, indeed. <laughs> um, so let's talk about reading like a writer. Uh-huh. So one of your nonfiction books, uh, 2006 or or mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. around that time. Um, so why this book? Is it something from working with, with writers, teaching writing? Um, I read your piece about Iowa City, too. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah, wasn't that was fun. Um, well, no, it started because I, well, actually, a number of the, of the uh, chapters in there began as uh, lectures that I had to give uh, at various writers' conferences and so forth. But, but it also started because I would go around talking to students in MFA programs and... Um, and it turned out they just hadn't read any books. So that seemed weird to me that they would want to be writers when they didn't seem to want to read books. So and and also I myself don't have an MFA. I didn't I was actually talking about this today that when I graduated from college back in, you know, Neanderthal era, there were only two two uh there was Iowa and Stanford and I mm. think that was it. And and no one even told me that there were MFA programs. It wasn't it just wasn't an option. So I don't know. How have did it a, start for you then? What was your I was a reader. I was a huge reader. I was a huge kid reader. You know, I was just constantly in fact I was talking about this the other day and you know, I was because I was sort of I had to give a talk about reasons for reading. And and I was saying, well, you know, I read the way most people read, which is or start to read, which is for escape. But people often think that that means that there was some horrible thing that you had to escape from into this other world. But, you know, I had a pretty happy childhood, and my parents were very nice to me and so forth. But I, it was only one life and one time, and the idea that you could escape to something rather than from something was thrilling to me. So you could, you know, become these other people and live in these different times and have this whole fantasy world. And I see it now with... My granddaughter, I mean, she loves to be read to. She loves, and she has that kid thing of wanting to hear the same stories over and over. I mean, she's big into Hansel and Gretel now for some reason. I don't know. And, um, you know, people want narrative, and they want, they want, you know, one life really isn't enough for most people. So, so reading and writing gives you a chance to lead others, really. So from this reading then, and would you just stay and like, would you just be engulfed in the book and read and read for hours mm-hmm. and then, yes, and kind of go, would, would it, what, what was your path like? Would you actually find a writer and then read all of yes. what they've done yes. and that, yes. and sort of, yes. what can you, can, is there any sort of one that you can remember where this person bumped you to, you know, there's those moments where uh-huh. you can almost remember your relationship with uh-huh. writers through a certain couple of months of reading or, well, you know, I mean, maybe and, I'm the only one. That can... No, no, that, no, that happens. I mean, that happens. Still happens, but you know when I started reading Barbara Pam, I read everything by Barbara Pam or or you know any number of writers. But but at that point when I was a kid, especially like ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, it was length that I was attracted to. You know, I just wanted to read long books because it meant that you didn't finish them. So uh-huh. and and also no one, you know, another thing that no one bothered telling me was the difference between quote unquote good books and quote unquote trashy popular books. So, you know, so as far so that I didn't really understand that there was supposed to be a difference between James Michener and Tolstoy. You know, or Margaret Mitchell, they were both in, involving and they were both and and I read all these books, it occurs to me now before I understood anything, I had no idea what people could have been talking about. 
you know, the Brothers Karamazov I read when I was in high school. Who, you know, I had no idea. I, because I just liked Did you get read. it at the library or how yeah. did you? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I can't remember. I was just thinking about a particular book the other day where I just really... Oh, I know. I was writing about Death in Venice. Somebody asked me to um, to write about a um, reading a book that made you want to go to a particular place. And I, and I thought, oh, Death in Venice. But the idea that this was a book about an elderly aristocrat obsessed, erotically obsessed with a little boy... That made no sense to me at all. I was like 12 years old. Like, what would that even have meant? But I did know, I did like creepiness because I also <laughs> liked horror stories. And I liked, I was very interested in the idea of plagues because my dad, my parents were doctors, so they had all these medical books around. So the idea of like going to this creepy city where there was a plague and dying from it was you know, all I wanted to do was go to Venice and die there immediately. But, you know, Von Eschenbach and, and the kid, that was just like a subplot to me. So clearly I had no idea what it was about. It didn't matter. And But all of these books you're absorbing, mm-hmm, all of these mm-hmm, language patterns, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When did it start? When was it that you actually was the moment where it all actually did click and mean something to you? So you were having that you were loving the reading of it and being there, but it was also something that, um, like it was words on a page that you felt then you could understand the world better. It wasn't your imagination, but do you have those, those moments where something about a book is there's like this connection or few, like you're fused into it almost as if you're all part of this energy ball. <laughs> well, <Okay>. you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think that the idea of understanding the world better came very late, very late, because, you know, there are all different reasons, you know, as I said, for reading. I mean, you know, I used to, I would, I wrote ghost stories a lot when I was a little kid. You wrote because, them? Yeah, because yeah. I would read them to the other kids on the block, and it was a kind of power because, you know, they were, like, terrified, and that was at least some power that I had. But, um, but you know, I mean, things are different now, but in college, no one ever suggested that reading was about understanding the world better. Or very few people. That's not true. I had a couple of really great professors. But but I don't know what they were... I don't. I can't remember what, how they were teaching, but it wasn't about any relation between human life and what was on the page. That just wasn't an issue. It was, you know, I don't know, literary, historical, you know, how does this represent the development of the 19th century novel? You know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think it wasn't until I got out of school and and became a quote-unquote grown-up and began to have a life that I could understand how something I might be reading might relate to the life that I suddenly seem to have. Who, who was that? Who were those writers? Who were those writers? Well, uh, I, you know... Or is it... Well, for example, I mean, you know, there's sort of two categories. I mean, one, um, you know, when I started reading, I don't know... George Eliot or, you know, real writer, Virginia Woolf even. But then, but but Garcia Marquez had a huge effect on me, a huge effect on me because he kind of rescued me from graduate school to a certain extent because, because it was so, everything I was learning seemed so dry to me and it was being taught in such a dry way. And A Hundred Years of Solitude came out around that time and somebody gave it to me. And it was like full of life and stories and, you know, twists and turns and plot turns and so forth and characters and love and romance and blah, 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 and adventure. And I suddenly thought, oh, I forgot this thing that I knew when I was a kid, which was that stories can be 
fun and profound at the same time. I just forgot the fun part. I had forgotten the fun part or been made to forget the fun part. And and it made me realize what a desiccated environment I was in and and it helped me get me out of there. I mean, I, I was talking the other day, I mean, I, a woman I know said that uh, that James reading James Salter's novel, A Sport and a Pastime, and it helped her end her first marriage. This is like, you know, 30 years ago because, you know, it's all about sex. And she thought, oh, I'm not having this kind of sex. I might as well just leave my husband. Well, I had the same, you know, it was, it was about reading, okay, a little bit. You know, when I read 100 Years of Solitude, I thought, I'm not having this reading experience. I should not be in graduate school. And so, and is that when you started writing mm-hmm. then more? Mm-hmm. Because you said you wrote the ghost stories mm-hmm. when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. And so were you also writing sh- short stories? Were you always like writing in some way, um, like a, uh, like did you have notebooks around? Or was it sometime, was it actually, I'm saved, and then you're leaving <laughs> grad school, and you just start like having a relationship with words on a page? Or I took a, writing like, classes in college, but I was really bad and I, and I was sort of doing Grace Paley imitations as I remember she, I mean, she's like a she's, hero she's yeah, a hero she's, yeah. she's a hero she's a goddess and you know and also because that was a voice I knew from my childhood and a voice that I'd never seen on the page before it seemed natural to me to do that because it was a natural voice I mean it was a voice that you know I grew up in Brooklyn it was a voice that was all around me and then there was Grace Paley writing this voice so I wrote these bad Grace Paley imitations but but I actually started writing my first novel just before I dropped out of graduate school so it was a kind of you know it was it wasn't as if I was sort of jumping into the abyss I had a sense of something else I wanted to do so you are you were onto it some mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. And what does that mean when you're writing a novel? Does that mean you're 100 pages in? Or what What sort of, or I, was it even just the opening into it that you well, felt and trusted? I, I wrote it in a strange way that <laughs> I can't imagine anyone, which was that I wrote it in longhand. And then I put it away and didn't look at it again. And then I started from scratch. I've never written anything like that, that or that way since. I just did it. It just seemed like, and again, because I... I had no MFA program, and there was no pressure on me, and no one cared if I wrote a novel or not, that was for sure, that I just felt all this freedom to just invent a way I wanted to work. So that was that was how that novel got written. Let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. You've got Living Writers today, Francine Prose. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. You've got living writers. Francine Prose is here. What were you going to say, Francine? Yeah, no, there is something I, w- I want to talk about, which is the um, the perennial and awful question of women writers not getting a fair deal. I mean, there was just recently a piece in the New York Times book review, I guess, by Meg Wolitzer. But, you know, 
I wrote a piece. I don't know, probably ten years ago now. Did, did they send it to you? It was, no, it was in I Harper's, was... and it was called "Scent of a Woman Woman's Ink." Ink, yes. And I, it I was, was curious about that. And yeah. it was like a bombshell. I mean, now people have been saying it for ten years, so it, you know it comes out again, and everybody go, "Yeah, yeah, it's a pity." But but when this came out, <laughs> it was just you know, it was as if I thrown this bomb into the culture because essentially I was asked to do it by my editor at Harper's, the magazine. And um, because I noticed, as many people have, how few names by women there are on mastheads of popular reviews or prizes or whatever. And, you know, Harper had all these interns even then, so they put an intern on the actual research to get the statistics. It's much worse than I'd imagined. So, so I set out to sort of figure out why that was. And also because, it, you know, it has to be acknowledged that, that many of the people making these decisions are women as well as men. It's not as if uh, these publishing houses and reviews are all staffed entirely by, by men. So um, so I found all Well, we these... were talking about all men writers, I think, until Grace Paley. Like, I mean, it yeah, was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Um, so uh, I found all these writings by guys. And in fact, the title comes from a Norman Mailer essay in which he says... I can I can always sniff out the ink of the women, because and then he puts all these negative adjectives and all these guys. You know, yeah. th- this was in the '50s, '60s, early '70s before these guys knew that it wasn't okay to say this stuff. And they're saying, "Oh, women, you know, they're so domestic, they're humorless, they're narrow, they're blah, blah. and and so I went through and did this sort of setup, which was I picked two paired uh, a series of paired quotes without attribution, one by woman, one by man. Uh, and in every case, I mean, it was a setup. In every case, the male writer was humorless, sentimental, domestic, uh, narrow, and the woman was much broader and funny, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and that, when that piece came out, it was, I did nothing for the next three months except deal with the fallout because it was so... what so, were people... What were They were... I don't know. They were saying, like, what are you saying? That there should be a quota that 51% of all women published should be writers? And I was going, no. I, all I'm saying is that women should be taken as seriously as men. And, you know, I'm certainly not for a quota system, but I, I'm certainly uh, thinking that, that how seriously you're being taken as writers should not depend on your primary or secondary sex characteristics. It's the two things are unrelated. You have a brain. And um and it was huge news to people. It was a big shock. But it still hasn't gotten that much better. It still hasn't gotten that much better. I mean, I can't tell you how many panels I've been on where I've had the feeling that the guys in the audience were just taking a big nap until they heard a male voice and then they came, then they woke up. It hasn't, you know, that's sad but true still. Yeah, I, I know. I, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And somebody even said to me once, like, you, you, you write like you write like a man or something. And I was <laughs> oh, like, Oh, thank you. Yeah, right. thank yeah it was, you, a, yeah. It was a, a, a young lady said, a girl said it. Yeah, it was right. like, wh- and what do you even mean by that? <laughs> what is that? What? Yeah, what is? Well, that it's mean? fun to write from a male point of view. I mean, Blue Angel was huge fun to write. Partly it was from a male point of view, but you know, I discovered. One of the reasons that I was writing from a male point of view, and and a lot of A Changed Man is written from a male point of view. Interestingly, when you write from a male point of view, you can use the character's last name as the name Mm. of a character. But why is it that you can't say, you know, Smith woke up in the morning and brushed her hair? You just don't do it. You just don't do it. You use a first name or, you know, well, you go by your initial. You must be onto something. You know, A.M. Holmes didn't do it by accident. So, uh, so... It's so pervasive and it's so deep and it's such a, a, 
it is such an abyss to climb out of. But I think that it can't be said often enough. And also, I think, just for women writers out there, don't think it's just happening to you on your level. It it keeps happening. So even if you have this this number of books, like we've said, you mm-hmm. novels, short mm-hmm. story collections, mm-hmm. novellas, young mm-hmm. adult writing, mm-hmm. children's book. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to categorize gluttony, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> books about seven deadly sins. <laughs> yeah. And and these nonfiction, all of this. Yeah, still, still. I don't think it's gone away, and it's especially difficult. I mean, I think it's gotten easier. So what do what do you what do we I, okay? In, answer me this: What do we do? What do we do? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know because I don't. I don't see it getting that much better in uh, over the generations. It's gotten better. I mean, every so often, I, mean, I was talking about this yesterday, every so often I'll see some movie from the 30s or 40s where the sexism is so outrageous. I'll think, oh, this is great. Something's changed. You can't make this movie now. You can't make this movie now. But then, you know, I was talking about this with a friend of mine, and she said, oh, yeah, you just can't say it now. It doesn't mean people don't think that now. So I don't know. I don't know what to do. I wish I had a, a uh, I wish I had a, a plan, but I do think it helps to realize that it's not personal. Um, you know, it's not just you. It's out there. And maybe it also helps with characters like, uh, like Lula and um, who are smart, funny. You're in their interior world. You're seeing their vision for a number of pages. Yes and no. I mean, people are still trying to say that Flannery O'Connor shouldn't be in the canon, whatever that is. So why? Because she was a woman. Because she was funny. And and every so often, Wait, I'll who meet is someone, saying that? Oh, like, who, I, who you is? know, there was a piece in the New York Review of Books not that fifteen years ago. Maybe I dug it up for this uh, Harper's piece twenty years ago. But but you know, you still see things like that written, or people saying that Jane Austen wasn't as serious a writer as you know a male writer writing in her time. Right. Really. I was I, I would be surprised. Yes. I mean that doesn't seem right to me. Why she was writing about marriage? She's just a better writer. Than Nuance, and sentence for... structure, <laughs> intelligence, humor, perception, observation, accuracy—all those things—they are not gender linked. So when when you're if you're telling people read like a writer, mm-hmm. so when are you? What are you hoping that they'll they'll do with that? Like, will they go in and because you mentioned, um, I think you were you were saying if you need to write a party scene, read James Joyce's The Dead. Right. Well, you know, I think that's how you learn to write by reading, because you know the the workshop is built on the on the idea that you can learn by by fixing the mistakes of someone who makes mistakes. But you can also learn to write, I think, just as well, if not better, by by reading the flawless product of a person who makes no mistakes and just say, how did this person do this? Can I figure out how this was done? And and it, you're right, it does get you through osmosis of a certain sort. You know, the better the stuff you read, the better your stuff. And also, I'm just saying in that book, pay attention to language. You know, just pay attention to the words that are on the page. When we left off before the short break, uh, you had said that you felt a freedom in the writing of the novel and in, and, and the freedom to, to, I don't know, to speak, to think on the page, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever it is. And I am curious because I think that's, there's freedom there, but then there's also, it takes an, uh, I think an immense, um, like also you have to be 
somehow courageous to keep going. I, you know, I had this I don't mean to say, I know there's different yeah, types yeah. of courage, so I don't mean to, like, obviously in a war right. zone, different types of courage, but, yeah, sorry. But. I had the strangest thought the other day, and it was, I thought, I, I something finally occurred to me, which was that writing was a drug, that, and that writing may be the greatest anti-anxiety medication that I know about, so it's not a question of courage necessarily it's a question of self you know what do they call it self medicate self medicating <laughs> that you're self medicating i mean because if i don't honestly if i don't write for a couple of days i start feeling tremendously anxious and then i get to my desk and it all kind of dissipates so that may have to be you know which doesn't mean that there's not other kinds of anxiety that are associated with writing but the, but other kinds of free floating anxiety go away so you know that may have as much to do with anything else, with my so-called prolificness or productivity, which is I'm just trying to keep myself, you know, from flying into a million pieces and, you know, having to scrape my own brains off the wall or whatever, you know. But it is, it's also interesting that you're saying that you are, because you are feeling from the society, it's it's not as if you're you're writing in a bubble where you think, you, you know, you, you realize, you even feel it, you sense that there's some resistance in some right, ways or right. people are taking a nap when they ought to be really perked up and listening. And <laughs> yeah. um, right. That, so, that woman's moving her mouth. <laughs> so, so, I mean, so you sense that, but that mm-hmm. does not deter you. So maybe this, this compulsion or whatever, or mm-hmm. this, or this writing life, there's something in it that this connection to the imagination or to the interior, who, who you're meant to be or something. That's so, it's so much outweighs that, that you don't even listen. Oh, you sure. don't, it's like, it could be, or, or is oh, it? Oh, sure. sure. Oh yeah. No. And also I think a lot of writing or, or a lot of doing art of any kind is just getting the voices in your head to shut up. You know, I used to say, a friend of mine said this great thing. Maybe it's even in, in reading like a writer. He said um, that you have this little voice in your head and it's like Jiminy Cricket sitting on your shoulder and saying you know it's terrible it's terrible it's terrible it's terrible we all have that and in fact this over the summer I was at this antiques fair and I found this little folk art drawing on a paper bag of Jiminy Cricket and it's in my it's in it's in my studio now and I'm going like oh I don't have to have him on my shoulder now because he's across the room (laughs) but I think that a but you know, writing is one way, and 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 that's part of the sort of anti-anxiety thing. It's a way to just lose all that. You're not paying attention to who your audience is, or or you shouldn't be. I don't think, or what you, the critics are going to say, or what your mom's going to say, or whatever. You know, you're just in some other space that has to do with language and you and the screen or the page or whatever or your imagination. And you really can. I mean, honestly, you you can be disconnected w- about what anyone else is, what they'll say. Because I mean, when you when you say that here, that makes perfect sense. But well, I mean, the- have you ever not written something because you felt like you couldn't yet? Or no, years ago, I was I was writing a short story, and uh, and I was worried because there was a character who seemed to me too close to my brother-in-law, now my late brother-in-law. And a friend, a writer I very much respect, came over and I said, I can't do this. And he said, why not? And I thought, yeah, why not? 
And I did it. I mean, my, my now late brother-in-law never read it. It was never even an issue. But it would have been a way for me to stop myself from doing it had I really wanted to. So don't stop yourself. Don't stop yourself. I mean, believe me, there are other people who will stop you if they can't. So just, you know, give yourself the freedom to do it. That seems to be lovely. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for being here today, Francine. Oh, thanks so much. It was so much fun. Oh, it was so, so, so much fun on, on my end. And come come back anytime. Sure. You're open doors at WCBN whenever. <laughs> um, and thanks for also... Um, like turning us on to the the songs from your son. Do you want to mention his band name again? Think yes, it's listening. Leon Michaels. It's L. Michaels Affair, uh, also Aloe Black, and the new Dr. John record, Locked Down. And you've been listening to Living Writers today, Francine Prose. Her her book coming out in May, In Paper, My New American Life, um, with Harper Perennial. Thanks again to Text for Engineering. Thanks to all you listening out there. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, April 18, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, federal officials announce new rules to regulate natural gas fracking, but critics warn they don't go far enough. Students across the country brace for high-stakes tests linked to funding and teacher evaluations, while a growing movement pushes for an end to excessive testing. And we'll go to Pakistan, where relatives of the disappeared demand answers from the government. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Police arrested 13 people as Occupy New Haven was evicted from a city park called The Green at 8 this morning. Yesterday, protesters lost a free speech appeal at the Second Circuit Court in New York City. From Connecticut, FSRN's Melinda Tuhus reports. 